Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I can inform you that after 53 minutes of play, the score was Argentina nil and the Netherlands nil. So you are missing nothing. I promise, as the director of Rare Book School, that this is a better gig. In some sense, we could say this is the sixth summer lecture of the Rare Book School series of 10. But that's not really true because this is the Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin lecture in bibliography. This is the most important annual lecture that the school sponsors. It's named for the two founding editors of A.B. Bookman's Weekly which from 1948 to 1999 was among the most important journals in the antiquarian bookselling world. I'm sure many of you know it. It's a repository of fantastic knowledge. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual Rare Book School lecture in honor of her husband, Saul, and in recognition of his many contributions to the antiquarian book trade. This is way back when Rare Book School was at Columbia University, and behold the man himself. Behold another man himself here, for Michael Winship gave the very first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography at Columbia University in December of 1985. And after he died, not Michael Winship, but Saul, <laughs> in 1986, a few months after Winship delivered his inaugural lecture, though there was no proximate cause, Marianne herself continued to support Rare Book School both at Columbia University and then when RBS moved here from Columbia in 1992, she continued to support the school and um, she allowed the founding director, Terry Bellinger, to change the name of the lecture to the Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography. From 1999 to 2004, Marianne funded the New Scholars Program of the Bibliographical Society of America, which Michael Winship was instrumental in bringing to life. I myself was one of the earliest beneficiaries of that program. Uh, Barbara Heritage, sitting in the audience, the assistant director of Rare Book School, is one of the most recent beneficiaries of that program, and we are much indebted to her. The program gave participants an opportunity to present unpublished research and to acquaint members of the society with new work from new scholars on bibliographical topics. Until her death in 2005, Marianne Malkin came down from New York City to attend most of the eponymous Malkin lectures, and she left the school a significant portion of her estate. She is, I think it's accurate to say, the largest benefactor in the history of Rare Book School. She was truly a great friend of RBS in many ways, and it is a great privilege to honor the memory of her husband and her own memory in this ongoing way. Malkin lectures over the years have included such luminaries as Greer Allen, Nicholas Barker, Bill Barlow, Bob Darnton, Miriam Foote, Christopher DeHamel, Lucian Goldsmith, Jim Green, Selby Kiefer, Catherine Keyes Lieb, Paul Needham, Bill Reese, Ken Rendell, Barry Rosenthal, Justin Schiller, Roger Stoddard, Tom Tansel, and Marjorie Wynn. Not a bad list, and that's leaving out some of the good names. Joining their ranks as this year's Malkin Lecturer is the distinguished scholar Scott Casper. I promised I wouldn't dilate at great length about his time in the Cub Scouts. Uh, Scott is the Dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences and Professor of History at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. 
He earned his A.B. at an old school in New Jersey called Princeton and his M.A., M.Phil., and Ph.D. at Yale University. An historian of 19th century United States history, he is perhaps best known outside the book history community as the author of Sarah Johnson's Mount Vernon, which I recommend to you, The Forgotten History of an American Shrine, 2008, and of Constructing American Lives, Biography and Culture in 19th Century America. He's also edited or co-edited, at least by my count, seven books, including Moving Stories, Migration in the American West, and this is just one volume, The Oxford Encyclopedia of American Cultural and Intellectual History, on sale at better stores now. This came out in 2003. He currently chairs the advisory board for the SAT examination in United States history. You may all kind of twitch a little bit. And he serves as the delegate to the American Council of Learned Societies. Most germanely for this audience, he is a co-editor with Jeffrey Groves, Stephen Nissenbaum, and Michael Winship of Volume 3 of A History of the Book in America. And many of you will know this book, supremely important as it is. A lot of you, especially those of you of a certain age, will know this groundbreaking book, Perspectives on American Book History, Artifacts and Commentary. And this book was important not only for the essays it contained, but also because it contained a CD-ROM um, early in the days of the digital world to try to get people to think about the artifacts. Scott Casper has been super accomplished in many, many areas. Um, UMBC is lucky to have him as their dean. We are extremely fortunate to have him as our Malkin Lecture this afternoon. Scott. It is an honor to be here with you all today. I have heard about Rare Book School for years. I am sort of embarrassed to say this is my first visit. I hope it won't be my last. I want to thank Michael Suarez for that wonderful introduction and for inviting me to give this lecture and to thank Jeremy Dibble for, uh, for, for working out all the logistics and arrangements of this. Thank you so much. Uh, writing this talk has been kind of exercise in retrospection for me. I say this for several reasons. One is that for the last four or five years when I was working on Sarah Johnson's Mount Vernon and then when I took this turn into what some people call the dark side of administration, I have not done as much with the history of the book as I once did. Um, and this writing this talk and thinking about this talk has gotten me back into thinking about teaching a course on book history probably in about a year and, and other possibilities. It's also been an exercise in retrospection uh, because it's enabled me to think about the creation, what went into the creation of perspectives on American book history. And in order to tell that story, I'm going to sort of tell the story of how the book came to be. In order to do that, I've been thinking a lot about what we might call the sociology or the genealogy of American book history over the last two decades. In order to uh, begin that story, let me just start with several simple facts. In 1992, Michael Winship taught the summer seminars at the American Antiquarian Society, the summer seminars in the history of the book, uh, critical methods in the history of the book in the United States, and bibliographical approaches to the 19th century book in the United States, which may re resemble the seminar that some of you are taking this week. I took the latter seminar. At the time, I was a brand newly minted PhD. And in that seminar, and, and just um, pull up, I'm just going to show you a genealogy here. So Michael was teaching that seminar. Here, of course, are the books that many of you probably know. Michael's book, American Literary Publishing in the Mid-19th Century, and of course, the Bibliography of American Literature. 
In that seminar, which I took, I met uh, another recently minted PhD and recent, recently hired assistant professor uh, at Harvey Mudd College, Jeff Groves, and the two of us uh, became friends in that seminar and also became colleagues and, and collaborators in that seminar, and over the next several years, Jeff and I worked together on a number of projects, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, one of them, of course, is Perspectives on American Book History. It's also important to note that the anthology Reading Books, which came out in 1996, was the product, really, of those 1992 and perhaps the 1990 summer seminars that Michael had taught, because all of the contributors had been participants in those seminars. Eight years later, in 2000, Jeff Groves and I ourselves taught the summer seminar in the history of the book at the American Antiquarian Society. Our topic was teaching American book history, and in that seminar, two of our participants uh, were recent PhDs and recently hired assistant professors in American literature, Lloyd Pratt and Janine DeLombard. Lloyd and Janine had not met before that seminar, but in that seminar, they developed a collegial relationship. In the years since, each of them has published his or her own wonderful monograph. And in 2010, Lloyd and Janine team taught the summer seminar in the history of the book at the American Antiquarian Society called The Global American South and Early American Print Culture. I could tell this story as a story of generations. Michael teaches the seminar that teaches Jeff and me much of what we know about working with books. We teach a seminar that Lloyd and Janine take, and now they teach a seminar, and who knows whether some of the participants in that seminar a few years from now will be leading their own seminar at the American Antiquarian Society. Alternatively, I could I could tell this story as one of change over time in the field of American book history, represented in some sense by the evolving topics of the AAS summer seminars over the past 30 years. In the first decade, from the mid-1980s until about the mid-1990s, the seminars were very much about methods of doing book history, exemplified, of course, by the seminars that Michael Winship taught, six of them, over that span. Over the subsequent decade, thematic seminars in cultural history, with titles like Biography, Autobiography, and Personal Narrative, or Rereading the Early Republic from Krev Curta Cooper, Titles like that roughly alternated with seminars that emphasized material analysis of books, such as the one that Jeff and I team taught on teaching American book history. More recently, the seminar's titles suggest a different emphasis. Five of the six seminars from 2008 to 2013 include the phrase culture of print, or the phrase cultures, plural of print, or print culture in their titles. And their topics range from African-American to indigenous cultures of print to the newspaper and the culture of print, and so on. These more recent seminars are more about, I think, using the findings of book history, what we learned about the production, distribution, and consumption of texts, to ask larger questions about cultures. So that's the second way of framing change over time. Then again, I might frame this story as one of long-standing differences and variations in the questions that book historians ask. Here I draw from Joan Shelley Rubin's, I think, very important 2003 essay in the Journal of American History entitled, What is the History of the History of Books? And in that essay, Rubin describes three different kinds of questions that book historians have asked over the past several decades and continue to ask. The first set of questions, as Rubin puts it, are the ones we might call hard book history. They go like this, and I'm quoting Rubin here. On what material foundations did the history of the book in America rest? Or, more sim or simply, what was there? Studies in this vein tell us much that we didn't know about publishing 
the book trades, and about readers. They often revised what Rubin calls commonplaces of American literary history. The second set of studies asks, what values and needs have books served in American society? This question lies more in the realm of cultural history or social history, and those who tend to answer it tend to focus on the mediators, everybody, everyone from book clubs to schools to advertisers that have helped shape the cultural value of the printed word. And these studies also tend to focus on the cultural practices and sites where reading takes place. The third set of studies, in Rubin's words, use the book to pose a problem that goes beyond the history of print. How does a culture work? Studies in this vein often do very little of what we might call hard book history, that first question, themselves, although their work is often informed by and very much dependent upon the book trade history and less often the descriptive bibliography that has been done by many others before them. Their arguments often deploy the history of textual and intellectual circulation to address large questions of power and authority, public and private, or art and, art and commerce, which is a topic of much of Joe Michelle Rubin's own work. It could be really instructive to try to map Rubin's three sets of questions onto the generations that I mentioned before. I think, in fact, that that's a very complicated map that is not easy at all. To return to my own story, I started working in the history of the book as a PhD student in American Studies on a short-term fellowship at the American Antiquarian Society. I had read some of the important works of American book history scholarship, the stuff of the mid-1980s and late-1980s that brought the study of readers and publishers and forgotten texts into the view of American studies. And here are a few of those books. The one on the left, uh, Kathy Davidson's Revolution in the Word, is the one that probably most influenced my own intellectual trajectory in its work of combining the study of early American publishing and reading habits with close textual analysis of early American novels. The middle book here, Reading in America, is the collection of essays that Davidson had edited a collection that first appeared as a special issue of the journal American Quarterly, and the third, Beneath the American Renaissance, is David Reynolds' enormous tome of the late 1980s, uh, which offered ways to look underneath the canon and around the canon in order to use all of those forgotten books, the, the small, literary works, or often considered subliterary works, to reimagine the canon itself. But until I drove my 1971 Volvo station wagon to Worcester in August of 1990, I never imagined that I myself would do the archival work of book history, the study of the publication history of texts and editions, or searching for evidence of actual readers or paying attention to such material traces as bindings, inserted advertisements, and marginalia. It really was the staff at AAS, Joanne Chasen, Marie Lamoureux, and many others. Many of you will know some of these, these people uh, and their successors in some cases. Uh, and more experienced researchers who were also there that fall of 1990, especially the late Bill Gilmore, who introduced me to the archives of book history the catalogs of 19th century social and circulating libraries around the United States, the circulation records of several of those libraries that taught us what people checked out and perhaps taught us even more deeply what they read, and the multiple editions of the same works that enabled me to think, for example, about how the publishing of Nathaniel Hawthorne's campaign biography of Franklin Pierce was connected to larger questions of publishing and the world of Tickner and Fields, as well as the world of Democratic Party politics. What started, in other words, as a so-called new historicist project in textual analysis became, thanks to the American Antiquarian Society, a, more, a, a larger study of how a genre 
was produced and consumed across a century and how people's ideas of that genre changed over time. Two summers later, in 1992, just before I hit the road, in a different, not quite as old car, for what became 21 years at the University of Nevada, Reno, I took Michael's summer seminar, and that was where I began thinking more critically and more carefully about the material analysis of the printed book. Why do I start with all of this autobiography, which I don't usually like to do? I start because I was not alone in this trajectory in the late 1980s and early to mid-1990s. Around the same time, a number of my compatriots in graduate school and PhD students in other institutions around the United States were making similar transitions in their work. Transitions from thinking about literary texts, possibly in a historical vein, to thinking about the material production and consumption of those texts. And I want to say a bit about why that might have been so at that time in order then to explain how perspectives on American book history came to be. You might know the names of some of the people who were in that same cohort. People like Meredith McGill, uh, whose book is about uh, the culture of reprinting copyright law and its emphasis and its, its importance for texts in the early 19th century. Rosalind Reamer, whose book Printers and Men of Capital is about the early, earliest Philadelphia printers turned publishers. Or Paul Guchar, who has worked for many years now in the publishing history of American religious texts. A good rule of thumb is that you count backward about six to eight years from the publication of the book to figure out when the person got his or her PhD. By my count, and also by some web research, these are all books by scholars who finished their PhDs in the early 1990s, part of the same generation of American book historians. I think several strands, both institutional and intellectual, help account for this convergence at this moment. The American Antiquarian Society's program in the history of the book in America was founded in 1983, and AAS's fellowship programs were very appealing, particularly to young dissertation writing scholars, as they still are, um, because they're an opportunity to work in a remarkable archive. Many scholars, like me, didn't arrive at AAS planning to work in book history. It sucked us in. The archives sucked us in, the lectures we heard sucked us in, the staff sucked us in, and the fellow scholars, the more established scholars who came for a day or a week or a month and who were very generous with their time, got us thinking about questions of texts that we might not have thought of before. The Society for the History of Authorship, Reading, and Publishing, a.k.a. Sharp, founded in 1991-1992, held its first conference in New York City in 1993. And that was another, became another node in an emerging network of book history scholars and scholarship. The result was that a number of us began getting to know one another at AAS and at Sharp, and then started devising panels and projects with one another. That's how the anthology Reading Books came about, and that's how, ultimately, Perspectives on American Book History also came about. At the same time, intellectual developments in both literary studies and history were leading more of us to the history of the book. The cultural turn in historical studies influenced by literary studies and also by the anthropological work of Clifford Geertz and others, encouraged what we all call close reading or thick description of texts, cultural practices, rituals in past eras. From the literary side, the new historicist movement of the late 1980s to 1990s which in many ways succeeded and argued against the new criticism of an earlier period, was influenced by reader response criticism and post-structuralism. It drew upon the work of Michel Foucault, Mikhail Bakhtin, and Raymond Williams, as well as many others, and it led scholars in literary studies to think anew about the relationships between literary texts 
and their historical and ideological context. Both of these developments, I think, encourage scholars to turn to the actual evidence, the real stuff of how texts function in place and time. So did the rapid transformations in publishing in our own time. I think we can't underestimate the ways in which we, as scholars, as historians, as literary scholars, as bibliographers, are also shaped by the times in which we live and the questions and ideas that those transformations produced encouraged many of us to ask questions about the histories of some of those same transformations. Robert Darnton's model of the communication circuit, introduced in his 1982 essay and widely reprinted thereafter, offered a schematic in which to consider the evidence we were finding, a schematic that many scholars, of course, have now complicated in interesting ways. And in the introduction to reading books, uh, Michael Winship wrote about the special contribution that the history of the book could make at a time when numerous scholars influenced by cultural theory were deepening our understanding of text. So I'm going to quote here uh, because I think this lays, it's, this really encapsulates what makes history of the book different and specific. If literary culture can be seen to be, in quotes, produced in a metaphoric sense, Literary texts as books are first produced in a material sense, in printing shops and factories by living men and women. The literary marketplace may have, may have emerged as an important cultural metaphor in the antebellum years, but let us not forget that simultaneously, authors and publishers found themselves caught up in real marketplaces with their texts, ones where money, credit, and goods were exchanged. Book history, in other words, needed to be more than just a special form of cultural history. It needed to address the material book as well as the cultural work, and to examine the book trade as an economic institution, not just a cultural or metaphorical one. Now, I offer this very sketchy sketch of the terrain circa mid-1990s as context for perspectives on American book history. By 1995, many of us who had been getting our PhDs over the last several years were happily employed, thank goodness, in various institutions uh, as professors in history departments and English departments most, most commonly. But we hadn't gotten our jobs because we were book historians. We had responded to ads that were looking for, say, a historian of the United States from, from 1763 to 1850. That was the one I responded to. Or 19th century American literature. Or American social history. But once ensconced in our new homes, we wanted to teach what we studied and what we were passionate about, in addition to the chronological or topical surveys that, we had, that came with the jobs. This meant creating courses from scratch. Given the material dimension of book history, the importance of getting books, getting stuff in our students' hands, and getting the documentary evidence of books and their production in front of them, it also meant creating archives where we now taught. Our graduate work, typically, had occurred at universities with extensive special collections. Many of us have been fortunate to do archival work, some, some of us on fellowships at places like the American Antiquarian Society. But many of us came to jobs in universities without similar riches, universities with smaller special collections departments, universities without that kind of extensive material that we could get our students hands on. Furthermore, if we wanted to expose our students to the new scholarship being done in the history of the book, we needed to create, at that time, this is 1995, remember, course packs. Those do-it-yourself Xerox readers that proliferated in the days before everything went online. There were a few volumes of essays, like uh, the ones I've shown already. Uh, oh, oops, not yet. Uh, look at that. Um, there were a few volumes of essays, like reading books, like Kathy Davidson's reading, reading in America, like James Machor's uh, Readers in History, but those were few, and they, were they tended to be skewed toward the 19th century and very focused. We were seeing in publications like the Sharp Newsletter and the AAS publication, the book, that people were beginning to teach courses in book history. 
is their syllabi started being published in those newsletters. But what we noticed was there was no text, there was no reader that existed for us to use. We needed a reader for the sort of survey course in American book history that some of us wanted to teach. And fortunately, at the time, there was a relatively recent series in the market that could serve as a model. This is the Major Problems series that was then published by DC Heath. Now it's published by Cengage. Each Major Problems book, edited by a leading scholar in a particular field, had 15 chapters, all the better to teach in a 15-week semester. <laughs> Each chapter contained six to 10 primary sources, usually excerpted, and then excerpts from two or three scholarly works, either scholarly books or scholarly essays. We got the notion of creating some kind of a major problems reader in American book history, we being Jeff Groves and I, who by that point had given talks on each other's campuses and had come to see ourselves as kind of a western outpost of American book history out in California and Nevada, far from the center of the universe, which was Worcester, Massachusetts. <laughs> so we started talking about editing a reader. We were fortunate that Paul Wright, then editor at the University of Massachusetts Press, was himself a book historian. He was working on a history of the Harvard classics, the five-foot shelf of books that sought to define the great books. And Paul wanted UMass to become the publishing hub of the book history world. To explain how PADH, as we came to call it, came into being, I have gone to the archive. The archive, in this case, being a large plastic file bin of emails and other documents from 1997 and 1998 that lives in my garage. In this file bin, which I have not visited since about 1999 or 2000, I found what many of us as book historians look for in the archives we study. The inner history, and in some cases, in my case, the forgotten history, of how the book came to be. What I found was that when we first imagined this book, we called it The History of the Book in America, 1600 to 1900, a reader. First of all, it's dull. But I want to talk about four changes that occurred that transformed our notion of what this book would be. The first was an addition to our editorial team. Jeff and I realized very early that we wanted Joanne Chasen, research librarian at AAS, to join our editorial team. Joanne knew the cast of characters doing book history better than anyone else because she was the first and often the primary contact for every fellow and most scholars who came through the doors of the American Antiquarian Society. She also knew the bibliography very well having developed a workshop on two book trucks, which Michael will remember and I will remember and others who've been at AAS will remember, a workshop for the AAS summer seminars. Second, in talking with Paul Wright at UMass, we realized that creating a reader without the 20th century was short-sighted. Our original dates, 1600 to 1900, reflected both the AAS collections we knew and the thrust of a lot of the book history scholarship up to 1997. There were some works on the 20th century, Janice Radway's Reading the Romance, some of Joan Shelley Rubin's work, Jim West's book, American Authors in the American Literary Marketplace to 1900, but we were starting from what we knew best, and given that Jeff, Joanne, and I were novices about mostly anything post-1880, we were shooting in the relative dark. As I searched through the plastic archive, I, have, I uncovered a page of notes dated October 16, 1997, on which I wrote the following, in quotes, ideas for 20th century chapters. This was from a conversation with Jeff and Joanna. Modern, new, and old, a final chapter on both the web and small press stuff, artist books. Five-foot shelf, arrow, Book of the Month Club, Arrow, Reader's Digest, Franklin Mint, etc., Arrow, Library of America, in parentheses, Making of Middlebrow, Canon, etc. Economics of Publishing, Newspapers and Magazines, question mark, Alternative Publishing, Little Magazines of the Early 20th Century, Artist Books. As ideas went, those were pretty sketchy. 
The third big change, and probably the most significant change, is encapsulated in that title change from the history of to perspectives on, and from a reader to artifacts and commentary. We knew that a 300-page volume was not possibly going to tell the history of the book in America. It's probably for the same reason that the American Antiquarian Society decided to call its five-volume, much more comprehensive series a history of the book in America rather than the history of anything. Even more important, we figured out that we wanted the ideas and voices of a generation of rising scholars of, in this field in the book. And we wanted the book to help students think about materials, not just encounter them. How to do this? Many scholars that we were thinking about hadn't published their own books yet. They had only recently finished their graduate degrees. Some of them had, had published few, if any, articles. So the major problems model in which we do excerpts from existing scholarship would not work to capture a rising generation of scholars. Jeff and Joanne and I knew a lot of primary sources, but we weren't experts on the array of possibilities, especially for the colonial period of the 20th century. So we decided to enlist what we call the dream team of mostly younger scholars to take ownership of the chapters we were devising. And you have a table of contents on your, on your chairs. We've, uh, we've spaced them out because we have enough copies to, for, for sharing. We basically chucked the major problems approach of excerpting canned scholarly essays or book chapters. And instead, we invited each contributor to choose his or her own primary sources, which we call the archive for his or her chapter, and to write an original essay, the commentary, that would link some of these artifacts to the larger themes of the chapter. Ideally, too, we hoped that the essays would model for teachers and students using the book some ways they could use artifacts in their classrooms and the way students might think about and write about artifacts for themselves. Thus, for example, Jeff Grove's essay in chapter five, The Book Trade Transformed, took one artifact in his chapter, which was selections from Jacob Abbott's little book, The Harper Establishment, from 1853, and demonstrated how that artifact could be read in two ways. It could be read as a remarkable description of a newly industrializing publishing operation, and at the same time, it could be read rhetorically as an ode to the publisher at a time when the trade was in transformation. In a different vein, Nancy Cook devised chapter nine, which is about publishing and distribution in the Gilded Age, around the figure of one author, Mark Twain. And she created an archive for that chapter that showed Twain as author, as publisher, as innovator in technology, as contributor to conversations about copyright during his day, and used her essay to bring those together. In sum, we replaced the singularity of the word history with the multiplicity select suggested by the word perspectives. And we changed the inert, flat word reader and all that suggests to the notion that students themselves would be mining the archive and thinking about how they too could comment on it. As a book historian, I'd be remiss not to mention that cost had something to do with this as well. In, in emails that I unearthed in my archive, uh, I found that we also explained to the press probably for the reasons that authors have talked to presses for many, many, many years, that it would cost less to do this the way we were doing it. It would cost less to commission new essays than to pay for reprinting old essays. And I'm somewhat embarrassed to read this parenthetical aside in one of our misses to Paul Wright about why we wanted rising, rising figures in the history of the book rather than the big established names in the field. And this is a quotation, an embarrassing quotation. These scholars, we imagine, would be less likely to expect payment for their contributions. <laughs> So I talked about three of, the, three of the changes. The fourth, and this is the one that Jeff really devised, was the notion of an image archive on CD-ROM. Formatted as a website with very simple HTML to be easily moved from CD to hard drive. 
The image archive, or IA as we called it, addressed the impossibility of including as many visual images, especially color images, in the book as we wanted. It also sought to address the need for those kinds of visual materials for the instructor and students who didn't have a special collection. I should also note that a lot of us, and probably a lot of you in this room, were trying to have been trying to do what Rare Book School does on a grand scale, which is to create our own small teaching archives by buying old books that our students can get their hands on. The image archive was, in our words, an attempt to provide useful visual images of books. Magazines, manuscripts, technologies, readers. In short, the product of print culture for classroom use. The description in our 1997 prospectus reveals the ways we were navigating the state of technology at the time. This is a long quote because I think it'll tell you something about where we were in 1997. Putting a website on a CD rather than hanging it permanently on a network has several distinct advantages. For most teachers, a CD is more reliable than a network connection. Local networks have a tendency to break down just when they are most needed, but CD-ROM drives, which are now standard pieces of equipment on even the most basic new computers, are very dependable. For students, having the CD included as a supplement in their reader means that they can use it at home or in their dorm rooms without paying for a network connection. Remember, world before Wi-Fi. For the editors and publisher who have invested time and money to create a copyrighted product, the digital images while reproducing public domain works are themselves new works and are thus copyrightable, the CD provides a small barrier to copyright infringement. How the world has changed. I want to give you a brief sense of how the image archive works. So do that here. So for each chapter, except the one on 20th century newspapers, there's a folder of images. This is the home page, or the, the front page, of the image archive. And we included suggestions for classroom use, how to use it as a supplement to the book, how to create classroom slide presentations, because teachers or students could simply manipulate images, pull images, and use them in their own presentations. They could do various other things with them. And then for each chapter, we included a variety of images. And I want to show you just some materials from one of the chapters, chapter 9, which is the Mark Twain chapter, the chapter about publishing and authorship in the Gilded Age. One of the things that we hoped to do with this book was give students a tangible, material sense of books they might not be able to get their hands on in person. So we found several books, including this subscription prospectus for Twain's Innocence Abroad and Roughing It, you could blow any image up two sizes if you wanted. Back. Back. Here's the browser. With this book and with several others, we took students inside the book and we offered a brief caption for each image about subscription books, about what they were seeing. So we took them to the paste down materials in the front of the book. text and illustration pages, and so on and so on. And I'll show you in a moment what a lot of those look like, actually. Let me just go back here. So we had the variety of images from one single book in order to give teachers and students a sense of what a subscription prospectus looked like. We also provided images of various other sorts, including one of our favorites, which I can't resist showing, an artist's book from 1998 by the artist Julie Chen, who created a book called Bon Bomo. Looks like a Whitman sampler of chocolates. But if you go inside the Whitman sampler of chocolates, what you find are five small artist books within the large artist book in order to give students a sense of what artists could do with the book. Through the image archive, we tried to provide a sense of what the insides of books were like. These are three images from the same dying novel. The book trades, and a number of the images are images of the interiors of publishers and printing houses. 
broadsides about the book trades, broadsides about technology. The development of various forms of advertisement and mediation that fostered the so-called middle-brow culture. This was uh, an illustration from Life magazine about everyday tastes of the different brows in all kinds of categories. Highbrow, upper-middle-brow, lower-middle-brow, and low-brow, including their tastes in reading. The use of book clubs to mediate book culture and to recommend books. And also, the print materials that had been created for different ethnic, linguistic, and religious communities. What we have in this slide are two pages from an early California English-Chinese newspaper, The Oriental. The book on the upper right, anybody recognize that alphabet? It's the Deseret Alphabet. And exactly, this is the alphabet created in Utah by Brigham Young and uh, taught to students in the 1870s in, in Utah. I, I bring this up also because it has a connection to teaching the history of the book. I first learned about the Deseret Alphabet because one of my students in Nevada found a copy in special collections in our archives and did her research paper about it. Otherwise, I wouldn't know about it. The one on the bottom left is Yiddish sheet music from the early 20th century from the major Yiddish publishing, Yiddish language publishing industry in New York for the new group of immigrants who are coming from Eastern Europe. Looking back at perspectives on American book history more than a decade since its publication in 2002, I can now see the book as an artifact itself. An artifact of a particular moment, not just a technological moment, when putting 150 images on a CD seemed like a lot to us, but was really only a small fraction of the technological capacity even at that time, but also of an intellectual moment in the historiography and the methodology of American book history. Look at the table of contents in front of you, and you'll begin to see what I mean. First, PABH is an uneasy hybrid of what might be called the hard book history that I talked about at the beginning, focused on the book trades and the material objects, and softer cultural history with really a clear tilt toward the latter. At the time, the anonymous external reviewer for UMass Press, another item from that archive in my garage, commented on this characteristic with some acerbity. Here's what she or he wrote. Overall, the focus of the volume, the focus of the volume mirrors what many academics, especially in cultural and literary history of an American studies kind, consider book history to be. This is not overwhelming, rich enthusiasm or praise. There was praise there, but there was this very important critique. This collection is on balance cultural history that makes certain gestures toward books. The recurrent terms world of print and print culture are giveaways to the cultural slant, this reviewer wrote. He or she expressed a desire for more on the, what here she called the core topics of book history, authorship and copyright, the interpretive frameworks around the history of reading, rather than merely individual reading accounts, and the book trades. Looking at the list of our contributors, it's possible to see how this took the turn it did. Unlike the contributors to the Reading Books Anthology, all alumni of Michael Winship's seminars, our contributors to PADH were roughly evenly divided between those alums and another coterie of alums, alums of the Yale American Studies program in the 1990s, which is where many of us got our PhDs. No wonder, in retrospect, that the book appears so hybrid. Second, if we were to redo PADH today, or create a new edition, the 20th century would surely require more attention. Specifically, the core topics that the external reviewer found lacking for the book are especially almost invisible for the 20th century. There appears to be no core at all. What's there are three chapters that might be called ancillaries or auxiliaries to the core story. Two of them cultural, middle ground culture and alternatives to the mainstream, one from the history of communications, newspapers. Where's the development of public publishing industry or changes in author-publisher relations? Where are the institutions, other than the Book of the Month Club, that influenced reading and the ways in which people read? 
especially since the publication of all five volumes of A History of the Book in America, we have much more knowledge, much more of what Joan Shelley Rubin puts in her first category, what was there with which to tell that 20th century story. Third, it's clear in retrospect that we weren't quite sure yet whether the history of the book could stand on its own, with its own narrative driving the, driving the volume forward. Look at that table of contents. At least three chapters take their topics not from book history, but rather from exogenous political and social developments in American history. The chapter on the American Revolution, the chapter on the Civil War, and the chapter on urbanization and immigration in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Here, too, I think that PABH shows itself or reveals itself as a pre-history of the book in America work. Perhaps we didn't yet have a model of how to use the history of the book itself to drive whatever narrative we aimed to tell. Then again, HBA, History of the Book in America, wrestled with the same dilemma. Basically, the dilemma of which of Joan Shelley Rubin's questions to emphasize. We can see that struggle in the differences among the five volumes of HBA. All five certainly address the book trades, and all five answer questions of what was there. But some of them, notably volume four, are propelled far more by social and cultural questions from the broader history of the period than they are propelled by the book history itself. Others, notably the one that Michael and Jeff and Steve Nissenbaum and I edited, volume three, foregrounded the book history narrative, maybe to such a large extent that important developments in national history, like the Civil War, got fairly short shrift, make only token appearances. To put it more simply, it is possible to imagine a master narrative of American book history that emphasizes the history of changing economic conditions and relationships within the book trades and among authors, readers, and publishers, and that emphasizes transformations in the American reading publics and the institutions that shaped and mediated reading practices. It is also possible to imagine book history being entirely subordinated to what else was going on in America, politically or socially, so that the history of books ultimately becomes a history of reflecting other histories. This isn't to say that I don't still find things to like in perspectives on American history, perspectives on American book history, thank goodness, because we spent a lot of time working on it. As the external reader for UMass Press commented, the sweep of the contents, and especially the range of primary sources, offer instructors a lot to work with. Looking back now, more than a decade later, in some ways, it's the commentary essays that seem even more valuable to me. Students can find all kinds of things out on the web. They can find artifacts in many, many places. But those commentary essays provide concrete models of what to do with the artifacts once you've found them, how to interpret them wherever you found them. Certain chapters, too, still seem fresh to me, in part because book historians haven't really gotten to them even a decade later. Consider, for example, Jen Huntley Smith's chapter on print cultures in the American West. Still, after five volumes of the history of the book in America, quite an understudy area, and perhaps only an hour book because Jeff and I thought of ourselves as a Western outpost, far from Worcester, and our students were far from Worcester. Another example is Ellen Garvey's chapter on alternative publishing across the 20th century, a real potential model for students to make sense of the alternative modes of communication we inhabit. I want to close by thinking about how PABH is a product of its 1990s moment, but also what our students might do if they were creating this book today. If we were to create a new edition, many of our students would surely read it in the electronic format the way they read many of their textbooks. And there would be all kinds of embedded links to a much expanded image archive out on the web. When I taught American book history in the early 2000s, my students' primary project, which they did in groups, was to create exhibits for our special collections department. 
on any aspect of the history of the book they chose. Several chose uh, African-American publishing in World War II. Several chose the publishing history of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It's a lot of fun. Today, I might assign students to create their own electronic image archives using PADH and the IA to model their, their captions. Ultimately, I hope my students would think generationally, not just historically, living in an internet world, but also historiographically. For all the recent changes in technologies of reading, writing, and publishing, the challenge for teaching book history remains what it was more than 20 years ago. Providing students with the tools and the methods and the materials to analyze books and to understand the processes by which they were created, disseminated, and consumed. Only in this way can our students get behind and beyond familiar pieties about culture, print or otherwise, historically or now. Thanks. Teaching 
by taking them apart to see the structure of bind, the structure of uh, stitching underneath the underneath the spine, and so on. I think that and I'm not sure I'm really answering your question at all, um, but but I think that students don't think of books as technologies. They think of machines. They think of their iPad or their Kindle as technology. They think of this as something that just exists for the stuff that's inside. So, now I'm cycling around to where you started. Okay. Because the image on that screen and the image on this page have something in common. If students don't think behind the production of that image, they're missing the technology, right? So in some ways, what they do with books in their everyday life is not that different from what they do with screens in their everyday life. They use them for the text, but don't think about them for the technology. And so we have to do the same thing for this that we have to do for that, which is to explain that there's, there are mechanisms behind it. Does that happen all? Okay. Oh, sorry, okay, yeah. Um, I was question I'm interested in the role of institutions in the narrative experience yes. and the transformative power that they yeah. can provide. And I'm thinking in your generation, the sort of pioneers, or, or, uh, if I can call you that, um, for the current generation, there are more, many more students. Yes. The context, academically, as well as intellectually, has shifted as well as technologically. Yes. What do you think institutions, particularly institutions outside of universities, and I say this mindful of Red Book School, mindful of Sharp, yes. mindful of the ASA, um, what can they do to uh, uh, support and facilitate the next generation of boys? I've been thinking about that. As I've been thinking about this, this talk and thinking about potentially a bigger project out of this talk about institutions, um, one of the things that has struck me as I thought about it is how many scholars now use the findings and some of the theoretical underpinnings of book history to do work that we might not call book history. That is, they might, in the context of a larger study of culture, write about the ways in which uh, a certain publisher packaged something. But they wouldn't spend, have spent much time in the publisher's archive. They would have spent time with just the, the, the text, but maybe even not deeply in the way we would call hard book history. Um, or the ways in which newspapers circulated around the United States. I think, I think what you see now is that the book history of the 1980s and 1990s, in some ways, has become currency for a lot of other people who aren't doing book history. And so when we ask the question, what can institutions do? I think one answer is to think about where hard book history fits in a world where, or in a, at least a scholarly landscape, where the fruits of book history are more widely known and more widely used than they were in 1992. It's worth noting that, that I don't think there are more any more job positions advertised in book history than there were in 1992 or 1993. History departments are still advertising for historians of the American Revolution, and literature departments are still advertising for scholars in 19th century American literature. Um, so, 
I think one of the grand visions of 1992 was this notion, I remember hearing it at Sharp, there will be jobs created specifically for book historians. There will be academic positions. There will be more centers of book history. And I think some places have done that. I, I think one of the institutions that, one of the kinds of institutions that is doing this, that we need to look to and connect with, are humanities councils. I think we should think about the state humanities councils that exist all over the United States as very important allies in the work that we are doing. Uh, of course, the Library of Congress has the Center for the Book, but many other state humanities councils sponsor various kinds of book-oriented work, whether it is, and I, I know this from my long life in Nevada, uh, the biggest event that the Nevada Humanities Council sponsors is the Vegas Valley Book Festival. Tens of thousands of people every year come out to this. In Maryland, where I now live, uh, the Maryland Humanities Council sponsors, as others do, uh, a book a year kind of reading program, right, where people all over the state are supposed are asked to read, read the same book. There are book clubs, there are other kinds of events associated with that book. Many universities do that as a freshman reads program. I think that those kinds of connections will connect us with people in the places we live who may not be in universities, but who are passionate about the same things we are passionate about. They are passionate about books and reading. They are passionate about history and the tangible material artifacts of the past. They could be our conduits to <coughs> spread what we do beyond the world of the academy. And I think it's important to think about organizations like that, at, at least within the US, um, as, as important connectors for our scholarly work. Our conversation will continue on the first floor of Alderman Library in the Rare Book School Suite. I invite all of you to come join us for some munchies and, dare I say, adult beverages. And um, you can certainly further conversation with Scott. Um, but before we um, move, we should thank Scott for... Thank you so much.